Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hello, my name is Charles Ree, TD Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to TD Cowan's Future Health Podcast. Today's podcast is part of our monthly series that continues T.D. Cowan's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare technology, consumerism, and policy is changing the way we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. And in this episode, we'll be looking at the outlook for clinical drug development and outsourcing. As over the last decade, contract research organizations, or CROs, have become an increasingly important stakeholder in the clinical trial process, with over half of biopharma R&D budgets outsourced to CROs, up from less than one-third uh, 10 years ago. And the role in the, in the supply chain is uh, quite critical. With the high cost of drug development and importance of time to approval, CROs are increasingly relied upon for a number of uh, services, including trial expertise, site network building, and abilities to accelerate KPIs such as study startups and recruitment timelines. And with an influx in demand during the pandemic spurred by COVID-19 and heightened biopharma funding, where does R&D budget growth now go and where does allocations go from here? And can CROs innovate their people-intensive processes to improve drug development costs and timelines going forward? Uh, to help us discuss these topics and more, I'm joined by Rainey Stevens. Rainey leads uh, Renatus Consulting, an independent advisory uh, firm to the CRO and life science industry. His experience spans the outsourced clinical trial procurement process, including procurement and contract negotiations during his time at Pfizer and Estellas, as well as business uh, development during his time at Inventive Health. Rainey, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Charles. Glad to be here. You know, maybe, Rainey, uh, I know I gave you a quick uh, intro there, but maybe you can share a little bit more about your background and, uh, you know, how he's gotten sort of into the industry. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, and when I think about that, that I was in a meeting about a year ago with a a bunch of colleagues and we were having dinner talking about how we all got in the industry. Um, and it's, uh, we all have uh, approached this as a, a small subset within the larger pharmaceutical environment itself. And uh, all of us around the table kind of fell into this industry. We, you know, there wasn't a defined pathway um, 25, 30 years ago into um, the the development world itself, you kind of made your way in in one way or another. Um, and I'm the same way. You know, the back in the early days of, um, of for uh, Pfizer sildenafil trials, which became Viagra and other studies, uh, Covance, which was called Corning Bessilar at the time, was running um, those trials on behalf of Pfizer. And they had an explosion of growth needs for people to fill, um, you know, fill the seats essentially to conduct those studies and to get those done. And that opened the door for me. And I got in um, into the CRO industry at that point, learning the business from the ground up as a monitor and doing some uh, cross training and data management, um, but didn't spend a lot of time in there because I had more of a business uh, communications background and was interested more in um, and how I could uh, explore that area of uh, of the CRO industry in the world itself, um, and moved quickly into a business development role where I was doing contract management. I was um, we call herding the cats. When a, a bid request comes in to the CRO, you know you have to um, coordinate quite a few individuals to pull together that RFP and to get the proposal out the door. And I did that for a long time and then moved into contract management. Eventually made my way up into uh, the sponsor side um, as, uh, as a career path and, and got into the outsourcing function at Pfizer in New York and did that 
um, and a couple of different stints with the company, um, managing the investigator contracting group. We did, you know, over 3,000 investigator contracts a year. Um, I also helped support a lot of the phase two through phase four B studies uh, out of New York and out of Groton at the time. And then from there, moved into um, Astellas, uh, had other roles as well along the way, but at Astellas as a global head of outsourcing and contract management with teams in uh, Europe and the UK as well as the US. Um, and then moved into, uh, for the past five years now, um, independent consulting in the outsourcing and the vendor management and relationship management contract negotiation uh, workspaces essentially and functions within this larger you know, clinical business operations function itself. That's great. It uh, brings a lot of experience here, and I think very topical to what we're, we're going to discuss. You've been at the ground level, you know, watching the CRO industry, you know, evolve over the years. Maybe you can help provide some of that context and, you know, think about, you know, you know, where have we gone from, you know, when we think about the origin of the outsourcing model? And maybe you can, you know, share for us, you know, how, how you've seen that evolve to, you know, how do we get here to, to today? Yeah, you know, it's um, I uh, actually when I was doing my uh, working on my master's uh, through the GWU in clinical research administration, I did a paper on this actually um, and wrote about the history of the CRO industry because it really got started based on the the fluctuations in resourcing due to failed programs um, it, within the drug pipeline. So, you know, a pharma company has a number of um, compounds and drugs in their pipeline. They start working on that portfolio. And what was happening, at, as I understand it from many years ago, was that, you know, Larger companies would go through a period where they had a failed drug and they needed to redeploy or lay off potentially those um, staff. And and that's how the industry really was born, was that a couple of people, one, Dennis Gillings, who eventually started Quintiles um, and was the leader of Quintiles for many years, and Hain Besselar, who started Besselar and Associates, which became uh, Corning Besselar and then Covance, they were really pioneers in this industry um, and realized that if they could... Um, retain and uh, attract and retain um, resources to fill the gaps, essentially, when a new program came in to the sponsor that they didn't have resources for, they could actually deploy those. And then really by uh, diluting the the risk across a number of clients uh, with the number of programs, um, they could actually minimize, you know, the, the up and down nature of uh, hiring and then, you know, either uh, redeploying or laying off uh, as the sponsor community um, was going through. So that's that's kind of how the industry got started. And it's evolved over time now to, I think, to your point, Charles, where we started, which, you know, CROs are an increasingly a more important stakeholder in the process. Um, and the models that have been used to, to, to staff trials and to um, execute on programs have gone back and forth. We call it the pendulum swing, you know, from essentially a full service type of an outsourcing paradigm to one where you are either piecemealing or a hybrid type of an approach for certain functions and services that are outsourced to a resource-based model. You know, the the industry started out on a, on a time and materials type basis where, you know, you just assign 15 people and you charged X amount and however many hours they worked and under contract, that's how you did it. We moved into a unit-based and fixed price structure. There's lots of different models that we use in, in how we contract for studies nowadays with CROs. Um, and then into the FSP model, the functional service provider model, which 
is this is kind of like a, a time and materials, but within a different set of uh, of guardrails and constraints that um, really focus on the function that is being deployed across a portfolio versus a single study. So if you look at data management, for instance, where that one started out, um, it it wasn't as uh, risky to deploy uh, resources for data management if you were doing it across a sponsor's portfolio versus one single study. So that functional model um, had grown a, uh, grown a number of different ways over the last few years, but it now mixes in with a full service type of model for delivery. And you see all kinds of different amalgamations really of, of, of the same basic uh, platform, which is, you know, it takes good people to execute clinical studies. And that is still the same today as it was, you know, when we started. I think one thing that's been very unique, certainly in the last few years, has has been the you know been the pandemic and and what we saw right was a, a significant increase in funding right. Uh, twenty twenty one just saw a massive amount of capital come into the industry. Lots of and, and I think you saw CROs respond in kind. Uh, you know, real growth across the board, and and so it was a major tailwind. Um, obviously, we are coming off the backside of that. And, uh, you know, the environment has changed, uh, you know, dramatically relative to just a couple of years ago. I guess if you we look in the aggregate, right, it, it's not that different from, you know, 2019. Uh, you know, what would you say is the state of the CRO industry uh, now uh, post pandemic? The pandemic put some constraints on certain trials and access to sites, as we all know, with lockdowns and with a lot of restricted access. And that, at first, there was a lot of buzz out there um, in circles about, you know, how that was going to negatively impact, you know, the portfolios of sponsors and their clinical trials. And there was a lot of worry, um, and rightfully so, I think, about, you know, how do we keep getting this done? How are patients going to get in to see the physicians and with lockdowns going on? And how do we keep that moving? But what what happened was everybody kind of pivoted, you know, to employing more um, innovative type solutions to um, the studies that were in flight and looking at how um, studies could be launched and continue to keep going um, even in the face of the pandemic and, and what was happening. And and from my own standpoint, uh, my work didn't slow down. It increased to kind of aligns to, you know, Charles, to what you're saying is that there was an influx, you know, the, the COVID-19 trials themselves was an influx of work that um, hit the industry and really bolstered the CROs because the the need for staff is still there. It, we've, we've had this discussion um, at the, I used to moderate the Linking Leaders Roundtable of outsourcing uh, colleagues that we'd come together every quarter. And we almost every single time talked about the state of resourcing um, in outsourcing as well as in other functions and how that was, um, that was a, it's a continuing issue that we need good people in here. So the, the pandemic really accelerated the adoption or at least the piloting of technology solutions and other creative ways to keep work flowing um, and keep studies going so that, you know, sponsors could continue to progress towards milestones and their launch, you know, targets and their and, and those types of milestones. So it, I think what it did, at, it, there was a question really on the back end of the pandemic as we started coming out of it among colleagues about, well, all these new and, you know, these shiny new toys, for instance, and things that uh, had gotten taken up during the, the, the pandemic itself, would they stick around, you know, or would we revert to the mean of doing it the same way that we've always done it? 
And I think what's been really kind of cool, in my opinion, is that um, a lot of this has stuck. It's it's maintained, and people who are sitting in innovation groups within sponsors and who are consulting as well out in the industry and as well as within the CROs and their technology groups and their innovation groups, they're, they are continuing to push these things and to keep them going, um, which I think actually creates a, another new segment of the market or at least expands the, the possibility of how that um, the, the technology sector and the innovation sector within research and development can continue to play a big part. And I, I yeah. know we're going to get to AI at some point because that's another, you know, now a hot topic. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, it's really definitely want to jump to that in, in a little bit here. But, you know, so obviously, you know, we, we're having this period where uh, an external factor has kind of changed the landscape a little bit. You know, I, I think a lot of what people are worrying about, I think, today is that this lack of a constrained funding environment, particularly for biotech. And, you know, anecdotally, we hear, you know, maybe even at pharma, some tightening of budgets to a certain extent. And maybe that's really just more macro-related, uh, as it were. But, you know, are, are you seeing any impact in terms of, I guess, any impact related to biotech funding in, ter in terms of how sponsors are approaching new projects? And, um, you know, does this create the potential for you know, cancellations in the future, you know, how, how are you looking at sort of, you know, what the potential ramifications of, you know, what's now going on, let's say about a year and change where at least from public capital markets, you know, we're not seeing a lot of funding, uh, you know, obviously we, we still see some from private uh, arenas, but just curious your thoughts there. It's an interesting thing to think about because uh, there, when the capital market started changing with some of the clients I was working with, you know, there was a heightened um, sensitivity and scrutiny on the outflow, right, on, on spend. And was that going to result in a reprioritization effort or some synergy targets to try to keep the portfolio moving? And what does that really mean? Um, and, and I'm kind of like you, Charles, as far as anecdotally, I hear things out there. And what I keep hearing is that there's money out there and it's just, it's not really being deployed yet. And it's not that it's, it's dried up. It's that it is more hesitant and potentially there is a bit more diligence going on before, um, you know, investments are, are made, but I haven't seen really a big slowdown in, um, in the, in the launch of new studies or the progression of, uh, portfolios, at least from where I sit in my perspective. What I have seen, though, is a is is a much is a heightened interest really on controlling costs and how do we how do we get the most out of our you know our dollars and our budgets um, and and keep everything in flight and that's um, you know that plays into what I do for a lot of my clients, which is to try to make sure that the costs being presented are accurate and they're fair and that we're getting you know you're getting a good deal, et cetera, and and negotiating the right kind of a contract paradigm. So I think I think there's still it, there's too many potential targets that are out there. There's too much going on within the discovery end of of science now and in in the in in the bench essentially um, that that really would say that there's that it's drying up and that you know biotech funding is on the wane. It's not you know they're they're in big trouble. I think the terms may not have been as good as they were before and and the, you know what you might have gotten from. Um, the the investors before has it, changed a bit, and maybe it's balanced a little bit more towards the middle. 
um, or even swung more towards the the investment side versus the biotech side. But, you know, and that pendulum, I think, is going to swing back and forth a bit as well. But I don't think that it's personally, I don't, there's too many diseases out there and there's too much need. Um, patients are waiting, as many companies will say in their, you know, in their uh, mantras and their taglines. And it's true. And so that, and with the, I think the, the continuing innovation and advancements in discovery and how that's working within um, uh, other areas of, of the industry, it's it's going to drive more products into the market um, and more uh, potential therapies and, and hopefully cures eventually for some diseases. So I, I still think positively about what's going on. You, you mentioned earlier about the that resourcing continues to always be a challenge, finding good people to, to come into this. You know, do, do you have uh, any concerns that there's any kind of overcapacity right now among CROs or or is it, you know, and, and I guess the question really is, um, kind of gets to pricing. Do, do you feel like pricing has uh, swung more back into the advantage of sponsors? Uh, you know, I guess perhaps, uh, you know, during the pandemic, maybe, um, you know, CROs were a little bit more in the driver's seat. You know, wh- where do you think we stand in terms of pricing and capacity? You know, I, I guess capacity's impact on pricing, to be honest. I think in the recent inflation, right, or recent, relatively recent inflation pressures um, have hit R&D budgets for sure. And, and that's starting to translate through the CRO contracts and their pricing models that come out. In some ways, I think it's still a little early to tell what the long-term impact of this might be, or whether you know it's going to change back into a different, you know, if we if inflation gets a bit more under control, and then what does that really mean? Um, I have seen quite a bit of discussion um, with sponsors and their CROs about how to address inflation. You know, contracts up until the last you know 18, 24 months had been either silent on inflation or had put very generous language in the inflation clauses that I've seen in contracts that weren't didn't really address it because it was low and it wasn't a concern. Now there have been more discussions about, hey, we're seeing 8%, 9%, you know, 10%. And in certain countries, it's even more uh, when you see rates come through that are increasing. And that's driving a lot more discussion. Um, I think as it relates to capacity and and the and and resources and the number of those in the industry, I haven't seen that really dip at all. Uh, anything I see from uh, in, you know layoffs or um, attrition within the CRO segment itself, I believe has been more due to the M and A activity there. You know, it's it is a pretty common experience now that. When CROs merge or acquire one versus the other, there's a period of disruption, um, and certain sponsors get more nervous about using CROs that have gone through that until they come out the other side. Because there are, even though a lot of times you know you hear that the acquisitions or the mergers are um, are complementary or that they fill a gap that one had versus the other, there are still quite a bit of overlaps that go on and some redundancies in functions that get addressed over time. But those resources don't just go out of the industry. They get, they're, they're moving to other CROs or they're, they're coming back into, uh, you know, sponsor companies. And with the rise of more, and this we did see quite a bit during the pandemic, um, the, some have called the war on talent. I call it the war for talent because 
there are, you know, with all the tech companies and other solutions, point to point, as well as platform solutions that have emerged and that are on the scene now, well, they're recruiting heavily from the same pool of, of resources that the CROs and the sponsors are recruiting from because sponsors go through their own pendulum swings. You know, they, they staff up and so they may grow a function internally more because they want more control over it or they think that the quality will be better if they can do it themselves. Then sometimes market and financial realities start to weigh in more and they, you know, they start to shed those roles and they transfer them back out. And those people don't necessarily leave the industry as much as they go to other types of providers. So it's a, it's still a pretty robust market, I think, for people who want to get in it and who can or who move into this industry to be employed and to find work all over the place. Then maybe asking the question a little differently, do you think that labor remains a, a concern, like yes, a, a ability to staff projects? Does that yeah. remain a challenge? It, yes, I, I do think it still re, uh, remains a challenge. And that, you know, we used to see that, and it, it was try, I was trying to go there a little bit. I probably missed it a bit um, with what I was saying about how the recruitment state and, uh, and resources. But we used to see this a lot, and it's been part of the underlying challenge where CROs were poaching from each other. Um, to fill the contracts that they had just won or the book of uh, work that they had won or working on with a sponsor. And that's that put its own pressure. So there was a lot, there was some, uh, I guess, some increases in salary and some uh, inflation of, um, of, of expense around, you know, what people are being paid because the, a lot of nice bonuses and raises were being offered to certain, you know, elements or groups in in and sort of CROs to jump ship, right, to come over. Um, that has been impacted by the rise of additional tech and other types of suppliers into the market. So I think the the need for resources is still there, and it's a big need. And how it's being addressed is, I don't know, is being effectively um, factored in, in, in yet as far as how universities or um, or colleges are, are, are putting in play, you know, R&D type pathways, right, and educational pathways. When I started and did my master's um, in clinical research administration, I was, I was the second cohort that went through that. And I started that in, I think it was 2004. Um, so, you know, that's, it's not really a long time necessarily um, to have a, um, a, an entire program in a university setting and at GWU at the time, I think it was one of maybe two that I'd heard of, but now there's more of those. So, and I think we need more of that out there so that there are pathways for people coming out of uh, undergrad uh, to move into this industry and time for them to um, get their, you know, get their bearings in the R&D world. And we did see this a lot during the pandemic and, and we still see that to some degree, at least I do where there's some over-promotion going on um, because um, companies are really scrambling to keep resources and trying to control their attrition rates. So they may be promoting people who are taking on jobs or taking on titles that they might need a few more years before they're really ready for that. And we've seen some of that in, in the quality that's come out, which has driven some, you know, con, uh, some difficult conversations between the providers and the sponsors about deliverables and timelines and the quality of those things coming in. So, you know, it's a multifaceted problem that is still in existence, I think, today. Yeah. Before we try to jump maybe into another topic, 
one last question, Scott, on the on the market overall. You know, I, I think you know we mentioned I mentioned at the beginning, right? We we're you know probably over a little over half of all R and D is outsourced today. What do you think the upper limit of um, outsourcing is or can be? Like, how much how much of clinical R and D can be outsourced? Is that a hundred percent? Is it are, are we at the limit? You know, what, what do you think the upper limit is? That's a good, that's a good question. I I I don't know if you know, I don't know if you'd ever get to a hundred percent really, but you know, there, there are, um, there are virtual, uh, CMOs out there now. There are, uh, and fractional CMOs, there are consulting firms that are offering, um, resources, uh, to help, um, augment staffing needs within biotech, especially, um, so that you, instead of hiring a full-time CFO or a CMO or even a CEO, um, there are there are people and companies out there offering fractional models like that. Um, so that gets you even closer to, you know, something that might be uh, 100% outsourced. The, the design of protocols and the implementation of those and execution of them all the way down through, you know, your commercial strategy. Um, we've, I mean, there's been, you know, outsourced sales forces and, um, and marketing um, out there for quite a long time. That's nothing new. Um, as well as on the research end of the spectrum. So it's it's not inconceivable that you could launch biotech um, and have really a skeletal crew the, of experts that guided and drove the whole program itself, and you outsource everything else, and you don't really have much, if any, internal capacity beyond possibly some, you know, baseline bricks and mortars to, you know, operate a business. And then, um, so I think in certain in certain viewpoints, you could outsource everything pretty much um, within that. Now, is that really going to happen? I don't think that's you know really that plausible, but um, it's conceivable. Kind of the same thing when you think about technology applications. You know, how far could you really design a fully virtual and technology-enabled trial so that you didn't use humans at all in it? You know, except for the patients and the physicians, but all the other functions around execution of the trial could be tech-enabled or or driven that way. And yeah. that's, I think, possible too. But um, I don't know that that's, you know, at least we, we've heard, you know, some ranges of like sixty-five to seventy percent seems like a reasonable level that we could get to over time. Is yeah, no, I don't think that sounds crazy at all. It sounds uh, totally feasible that that could that could be the case. You, you touched on the technological innovation. Obviously, a lot of uh, a lot of discussion, you know, both around AI, but also, you know, just in this space in general, you, you've seen a lot of new companies come to market, particularly around, um, you know, DCT, uh, decentralized clinical trials, and, you know, trying to offer new ways to create access for both patients and obviously allow sponsors to find patients for trials, you know, you know, maybe reduce timelines. Um, you know, what, you know, what have you seen so far among this, let's say, new crop of technology-enabled uh, tech solutions or technology-enabled services. You know, what's your impression of what you've seen so far coming at the market? Do you think they are uh, helping in uh, recruiting patients faster, or do you think it's having a dent in, in drug development costs and timelines? Well, I don't know about cost yet, uh, to be honest, but timelines is really the, is I think, where a lot of the focus is. And some of that is... Um, from a, maybe from one element of the cost perspective on a DCT level, right? So, you know, decentralized trials, if you're doing home health visits or you've got, you know, remote or virtual type monitoring going on, it's not, remote monitoring is not new. Remote data capture has been around for a little while as well. But, um, 
the the impact on timelines i think is the biggest factor um within the 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 technological you know the innovation space and the tech companies that are coming in these days that i've seen it's it's a and it is about you know how do you find the patients faster um and how do you keep them in your trials though so there are companies that are focusing more on you know on the the behavioral aspects of patients and how do you interact with them more effectively through uh, you know handheld devices and tech and and that type of thing and apps to keep them engaged and keep them in the study and keep your data flow on time so i and i think a lot of that you know there was this focus a few years ago um you know patients patient centricity was the buzzword um, and that's still alive today, but you know now it's being taken over by DCT, and now yeah, that's even being taken over to some degree by you know AI and what's going to happen there. These things sometimes, and DEI also, right? So DEI is a, is now coming from the FDA as well and the regulatory bodies to have a, D, a, a an inclusion and equity plan in your study design and in your in your program. Um, that's not necessarily technological, but there will be some technological, uh, I'm sure, apps and, um, and, and solutions that are brought forward to help um, address that and to, and to meet that need. But all of these things um, outside of how uh, the more esoteric or um, relational type technologies that are designed to improve the experience of the patient journey are are designed around how do you um, how do you decrease the timeline so speed to market and that's really the target whether it is cheaper you know I don't know um, it, it, I think it's hard to say it's a trade off right so you know you might need uh, less of one thing and it could be a net neutral right cost um, Im- impact or it could even be an increase but you can offset a cost increase by proving a timeline, you know, reduction. And if you can get to market faster, as we know, then, you know, that's significant. Are, are you seeing that? Uh, it, I mean, well, I guess the question is first, uh, you know, in some of the work that you're doing now, uh, are some of your clients employing some of these DCT models? Uh, have they tried using some of these offerings that are, are delivering on faster patient recruitment? Or, I mean, I'm, you know, some of these companies all claim that, hey, you know, we can recruit, you know, two times faster or three times faster, our model going out either through social media or through, you know, certain through certain other avenues. Um, curious if, if you're, you know, if you're seeing, you know, any signs that that might be, might be the case. Well, I'm seeing that the promises of those signs are there. You know, um, I'm, it's, and it's not that, uh, you know, this is just one person's, you know, viewpoint, right? So, there are probably some case studies out there where it is showing um, benefit to the uh, to employing these types of uh, solutions and strategies. Um, it, it's, but I think it, it will take some time. The thing that that I have experienced over my career is that, you know, especially large pharma, but you know, the the industry is a bit risk uh, resistant, right? They're risk shy, so taking on a new technology that hasn't been proven by somebody else <laughs> that's in the public eye, um, it makes companies a bit nervous. Plus, you have um, a pretty significant investment internally in the qualification of these new suppliers or the new technologies or offerings that, are, um, that aren't resident already or that you haven't already been using. So you have a, you know, you have a quality assurance process, you've got an IT process, 
you know, the the legal review of of how these things shake out have become more intense as these um, as these applications and solutions have come up into the market, and that does cause project teams and and project leaders to to pause sometimes and to take a step back and either run a pilot um, and to see how it might work before they fully implement it. And I think that's actually what makes these um, technology providers and solution providers, and not all technology-based, but um, frustrated, you know, and, and probably their investors a bit frustrated sometimes too, is that the uptake or the adoption, you know, it might look right and it might feel right and it might be pretty evident on paper that it's going to work and it's going to save money and time, but the the practical implication of it on the sponsor side is a bit slower. So, but that's beginning to change, I do believe, because I think there are people from, and I know there are people actually, colleagues who have moved from the service provider side of the equation into the sponsor side of the equation, and they bring with them <clears throat> that. adherence to and that willingness to adopt technologies or other types of solutions that um, that impact that those timelines and and those functions and make them more efficient Um, it's you know there's an old adage out there that you know nobody ever gets fired for hiring quintiles which is you know now the IQVIA these days uh, because they were you know that for the longest time uh, the biggest and it was the safe play and that was what the adage really meant. It wasn't about the particular CRO. It was about the the way that things have always been done. So stepping out of that box is a real risk, especially, you know, for the medical directors who own these programs. Um, their careers might be on the line if the drug fails, and it fails because of uh, something that they tried versus something that was tried and true, even if it was slower. And so that's a it's a tricky uh, situation to be in. But I do believe we are making advancements. It's just um, maybe not as fast as some of us would like. And it makes sense that uh, sponsors are kind of uh, are risk averse, and you know they they they're cautious, and uh, and it might take a little time for some of these to really get more adopted, and kind of fits in with the mantra that healthcare tends to lag in terms of certain types of technology adoption. But you know, clearly the 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 focus of everyone these days is you know this generative AI and. Uh, large language models, and you know, where do you think that can be applied um, in drug development? Uh, you know, I'd imagine yeah. that it does have a lot of potential applications. I, I think it does, um, and I think we're just, you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day actually about AI, and you know, it it it's only been around for a few months, really, you know, right? I mean, it, but the 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 exponential, uh, you know, increase in in the in how it has come out went from you know you you think it might take years for certain things to happen, and now the rate of of advancement within the AI space itself is is being measured in months and and days. And I guess I, one of the things that this podcast talked about was you know CEOs who you know two three months ago didn't even understand what AI was are now thinking, oh, wait, let's pause hiring. I think I heard IBM is high, is paused hiring of, what, 8,000 is the number I heard on this podcast, of, of back office personnel for their um, organization because the CEO believes that um, that AI may actually play a role in helping them avoid that cost and, and that overhead and those employees. Um, so it's really interesting how that's all starting to emerge in in our industry, too, 
I know that pharma companies are being very cautious around open um, platforms, right? Um, chat, GPT, yeah. the, you know, and the, um, and the natural closed version, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. So there's really some serious concerns and legitimate concerns about IP getting out through any type of an open, you know, um, AI type of, um, of application. And so there are, the brakes are being put on the use of those open, open source platforms for sure. Now that doesn't mean that the, the technology itself in other areas in a closed loop type system um, aren't going to be uh, employed and adopted. And there are companies out there, I'm working with one um, that I'm on their advisory board for that are looking at how um, they can literally reduce the collection and uh, the consolidation of data for uh, patient safety narratives um, from, you know, hundreds of hours into minutes. It's, it's amazing what that really uh, shows that it can do. And I believe there are other applications along the, the, the critical path of development that AI solutions like this can, you know, can be employed. Anything that reduces the churn and the, the physical uh, researching of, uh, of cross-referencing papers or data sources that, you know, you have to go through now um, or the, uh, the filtering of different databases and data sets to get to where you're going. If AI can enable that and really bridge the gap, then then that does a couple of things in my mind. One, it speeds that process, yes, and it makes it um, and it helps get you towards that you know speed to market type of goal that you're looking for. But it also then reduces the need for resources that you um, have to have today to do that type of work to get to the point where you can analyze and interpret that data and those results. Um, it helps alleviate that pressure. We were talking about the state of resourcing in the industry, you know, just a little bit ago. And I think one of the solutions AI may help with is, is, is that area where you're still going to need people, but if you can start to then find and train and educate people in, um, and resources in the, the higher end, the value add end of the spectrum versus the data collection and the um, and the anal and and the co consolidation phases, I suppose, um, that's really going to be a place I think where AI is going to help us too. Um, and even in the outsourcing arena, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to see uh, some solutions come out where AI is going to help um, help us get to a, a faster paradigm where we can solicit requests for proposals and get bids in. Um, that would enable that process and get you a, a lot faster to the to the goal of selection and then start a, a startup of your study. So I don't know if that helps with the answer, but I think there's quite a bit that's coming. Yeah, no, I mean it, it's all moving so fast. Uh, it's you know, totally. uh, I think what we'll be talking about tomorrow will you know maybe be completely different. You know, maybe just to to close out here, just a you know as you think about the you know, the CRO space overall and just where clinical development is going, you know, I, I guess more specifically CROs first is what is the competitive, you know, as you, you know, advise clients on, you know, CROs to work with or not, um, you know, what, what differentiates one CRO from another these days? And maybe we can think of the big guys first and then maybe, you know, uh, separate from maybe niche players in, in specific, you know, disease categories. But you know, more generally speaking, how, how do you how do you differentiate the offerings 
because I would generally think they can all generally do the same thing, uh, and probably the big guys they all generally do it pretty well. Just curious how you how you look at it. Yeah, you know, differentiation to me it 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 comes down to the quality of the people that you have and your ability to retain them, right? And and I and I say that because the technology that you bolt on, and we've seen a lot of this with the big CROs as well. They are, you know, they're looking to add on services um, and applications to to differentiate themselves from, you know, one from the other. It, it used to be, uh, what's your therapeutic area experience, you know, and, you know, are you really experienced in this indication? What's your global footprint? And that stuff is still very important with, uh, within the right perspective of the, of the need of the sponsor and the study itself. But the, you know, EDC years ago, was this uh, was you know new to the scene, and there were hundreds of uh, maybe not quite hundreds, but you know probably a hundred EDC companies out there that were trying to make their way. And CROs were looking to buy those up. They started buying them up. Some of them went out of business. Others um, merged, and you know it, it evolved over time. That was initially a bit of a differentiation, but then all of a sudden, you know, all the all the CROs had some EDC either either a partnership with a, a provider that was doing a great job or they brought it in house or they tried, they built it themselves. So I think there's a, I think the runway for differentiation on some of the technologies and some of the, you know, the shiny new things that you can throw in is limited. And it comes back down to your project managers, your data managers, you know, your statisticians, your monitors out in the field, those key people your medical directors that are overseeing and your safety teams, you, you, we're never going to get away from that. I think rightfully so, because um, the the ability and the quality of the people to keep programs on track, to manage all the chaos that goes on in a clinical trial, things happen every day um, that can throw you all, you know uh, out of whack and you've got to figure out how to keep it on track and keep going. That is the real competitive uh, advantage of a CRO. And I know one of the things that I look for when I'm working with a client and we're going through a selection effort um, is, you know, is the is their retention and their retention strategies and their culture and how do they treat their people? And what do I hear, you know, uh, on the street? Uh, because, you know, it's not just that we were talking about earlier, M&A and, you know, with the big CROs when they come together and there's some disruption that, you know, there's a lot of voluntary attrition in those things, too. I lived through that at Pfizer a number of times when, you know, the, the the development organization would reorganize. You lose good people because they they get uh, nervous or it makes them uncomfortable uh, that the change that's going on, um, it, for them, it doesn't work. So how do you keep those people, even in the midst of something like a merger or an acquisition from a CRO perspective, is a challenge. And how do you keep them in when other CROs might be throwing a lot of extra money at them? Because it's not always about the money. Once you get over, you know, you find that the culture doesn't fit. If 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 the CROs can show us and show me and the team that I'm working with that that they're the team they're presenting is uh, has been with them and they're really strong and they've got some depth in the area. That's you know those are key things that differentiate. Pricing is you know I negotiate that stuff all the time one against the other, um, and also running, you know, my own metrics and ratios on what pricing looks like. I think that, you know, my goal whenever I'm working with a, with a client is to take the cost of the trial out of the picture 
um, and the cost from the CRO out of the picture and, and let them make the decision on the quality and their belief that the CRO that they've got in front of them is going to be able to do the job for them uh, and deliver on time um, with as little disruption as possible, you know, that they can control. So that I've, I've had that belief for a long time and I stick to it. That's great. And, uh, you know, I think we're, we're kind of coming up on time here. Maybe one last, you know, I think, you know, we, we talked about the future with AI, you know, let's close out on the future on, on data. Right. You know, I think with the last 10 plus years, we've finally digitized all our electronic health records. And, you know, it seems like a, a very a potentially exciting area for pharma in particular to, to dive into this clinical data that probably only until last three, five years have really been able to get your hands around. Is that, you know, and, and we, you know, and I think about like use cases like uh, synthetic control arm design and uh, or patient identification for trials. How far along are we on that? And and do you think that's a real opportunity, uh, both from the CRO perspective, but both from as from sponsors, right? And is this is this data set as as potentially uh, useful as um, you know some some seem to think it is? I think it is. Um, it's it's interesting to me. I remember a company. I'm forgetting the name of them now. Uh, and this was back in probably 2008, nine or so. A long, you know, quite a while ago now. Where they were, um, they were trying to pioneer the EHRs um, and the portability of that, right? So, as a patient, you could take your, you know, your electronic health record and go wherever you wanted, and then how to translate that or access that within the the clinical trial environment. So, the work in in trying to um, access and pool and consolidate, you know, enormous data sets like that, and figure out how to you know, target patients um, down to the, you know, the regional and, and, and even, the, you know, the, uh, the disease state areas, using that data is in some ways still a challenge, but it has a lot of promise because it's, uh, everybody would say, I think, and most people would say that, you know, the data is the key, right? And it's always what we look for, you know, show me your data um, on everything, on your metrics uh, for your monitoring, for your data collection, for your statisticians and you know, your clinical trial reports and where, where does the data come from and how do we use it? That is translated back into um, how do we access uh, large data sets and pools of data to find new patients or to get people involved in the research process more um, for recruitment and then, you know, for other applications. But I don't know that, that it's been, you know, completely solved. I think there, there are companies out there that have, you know, not good approaches to um, accessing that and utilizing it. But, you know, you do run up against the privacy concerns and you've got to make sure that um, and we have to make sure that data is anonymized and that it is not um, that you're not putting personally identifiable information out there or it's that it's accessible. So there's some still some hesitation in some quarters about really relying on that uh, because of those types of concerns, but an interest in it. And there I think it's got some promise, but I don't think it's played out just yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, something we'll definitely uh, wait out for. Um, Rainey, uh, really enjoyed having you on. Would love to have you come back again in the future and, uh, you know, discuss to, you know, how we've progressed, particularly maybe on AI. We'll, we'll see how much uh, it's really <laughs> taken over everything. Every 30 days, we could do a touch point, couldn't we, Charles? Well, Randy, thanks so much. I really appreciate you being on. And uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us for uh, this uh, podcast and look forward to having you join us uh, for future uh, TD Cowan podcasts. And thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot. 
Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.